Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer. And she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way. Patients and survivors, caregivers and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire, and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 161 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Folks, you are in for a treat with this episode. We have a absolutely fantastic guest talking about a fascinating topic all around genetics and the genetics of cancer. Dr. Kat Arney is the host of the Genetics Unzipped podcast, where you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. She holds a PhD in developmental genetics from Cambridge University and was a key part of the science communications team at Cancer Research UK from 2004 to 2016 where she co-founded the charity's award-winning science blog and acted as a principal media spokesperson. She is also the author of Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work and How to Code a Human. She's written for Wired, Daily Mail, Nature, Mosaic, New Scientist, and many more. And her new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal, comes out next week here in the U.S. on October 13th. I can't recommend the book enough. I hope you'll check it out. You can learn more about the book at rebelcellbook.com. You can follow Kat online on Twitter at geneticsunzip as well as Kat, that's K-A-T underscore Arnie, A-R-N-E-Y. And you can use both handles as well to follow her on Instagram. Join me now for my conversation with Kat Arnie. Kat, welcome to the We Have Cancer podcast. I appreciate you joining me. And you're in the UK, so I could say finding time in your evening, even though here in the States it's in the afternoon, to to talk about the work that you do and more specifically the exciting news about your book that's coming out, being released here in the US about a week from now. Uh, and the name of the book is Rebel Cell. I know it has a longer tagline to that, but we'll just go with Rebel Cell and people can find it information about it at rebelcellbook.com. And I've had the pleasure of listening to your podcast, Genetics Unzipped, and reading uh, reading the book. And where does your passion for this work come from? 
Oh, well, thank you for a start for having me on. And yes, this is this Friday night in the UK. So there's there's a glass of wine with my name on it waiting for me after I've done this. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> thank you for having me. But I've I've always, I mean, I'm just one of these people who was always a, a deeply geeky kid. So I've always been fascinated by the world of science and it sort of took me into biology. And I think what really got me interested in the world of genetics and also in the world of cancer research was when I was doing my PhD. I did my PhD at a place called the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. And it was a really special place because unusually it brought together people who were cancer researchers with people who were developmental biologists. So that's that's sort of I self-identify as a developmental geneticist. I am fascinated by this whole process of how do you go from one single cell with one set of DNA and from that, you you unfold life. You from one human cell, fertilized egg, you unfold a baby. You can unfold a nematode worm, a fruit fly, a frog, a mouse. How does that work? And it, it turns out it's really complicated and hard. So that's why I'm not a scientist anymore. <laughs> My PhD was not very successful. Um, but I was really fascinated by how does one cell become many and how do these cells know what to do from this genetic code? And in the labs right next to me were these people who were cancer researchers who were asking the same question, but like, how do you go from one cell with this set of genetic code to something that is terrible and wrong? So from like an, an aberrant unfolding of life, from this mutated, terrible set of DNA where something's gone wrong to, to growing into a cancer. And I've always seen these things as the two sides of life and just been fascinated really by that question. How do you go from this, this DNA code, this string of molecular letters to, to cells, to organisms, to, to processes of life that unfold? It really is fascinating. and It's mind-blowing. <laughs> and when you stop and think about it, the fact that most people, unfortunately not everybody, but most people bring babies into this world that are perfect, for lack of a better word, when you think about all the things that have to go right for that to happen, and it, if you take a step back, that really is fascinating, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. So as a, as a developmental biologist, I was working, initially my PhD was in mice. So we were trying to understand this question, how do you go from one fertilized egg cell to, to start that process and, and the changes, you know, how does the DNA get used? What's the difference between the DNA that's coming in from dad in this, and the DNA that's coming from mum in the egg? And, you know, mouse embryos are beautiful and they're still the most beautiful natural things I've ever seen down a microscope. They're these kind of crystal clear little bubbles that sort of float around in your tiny Petri dish. And then during my, I did a, a short postdoc and I was working with a, a fertility clinic. We were trying to understand what goes wrong when human embryos don't develop, when sort of the processes of, of human fertility and IVF don't go right. And I got to see some human embryos and I was like, these are rubbish. Like how does how does <laughs> anything grow from this? And the the embryologist I was working with, she said, "No, these these are the good ones. Like these look just crap. Like, and it was amazing how the, this tiny collection of cells unfolds into a human. Like from from that start, I'm amazed that any of us are here. Frankly, <laughs> well, let's talk more. You know, let's get into the cancer piece." You said something that I like pause when, when I heard it. And you said, we get cancer 
because we can't not get cancer. Explain that. What did you mean? Yeah, so this sort of goes back to like the, the genesis of the book, really. So I spent 12 years of my life working in an organization called Cancer Research UK, a very big cancer charity in the UK. I think probably one of the biggest cancer research charity in the world, actually. I did some and work I, with them. I'm familiar with yeah, them. Yes. Yeah, my buddies. So it was a wonderful time. I spent a long time there working in the science communication team. And so it was my job to do the stuff like write for the website and write all this stuff and write on our blog. And, um, and we would do a lot of like the what is cancer? So every time you'd sit down to write something, what is cancer? It would be like, well, cancer starts when a cell picks up genetic changes, mutations, and multiplies out of control. And I was like, okay, well, that's a starting place. And I thought I was going to write a book about, you know, the genetics of cancer and write about all these mutations and what they did. And then I started to realize that there was a much bigger story about this disease in the context of the whole of life. Like this is this is not just a human disease, this is not just a modern disease. This is a disease that is actually the kind of the 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 dark mirror of normal life. And it goes back to what I discovered during my PhD working next door to the cancer researchers. It's it's sort of an emergent property of tissue. When cells go wrong, they become cancer. But it's like, well, what makes cells not go wrong? What makes tissue stay healthy? What's actually making these cells emerge into a tumor? And one of the key concepts that I came across that this was the real, like, this blew my mind. And I was like, this is a big thing I want to talk about, is the idea that our cells in our bodies, it's not just about like, this is the single cell that went wrong. Our cells live in a society. Our tissues are like little societies of cells and some of some areas of the body are stricter than others. And, you know, some are very free and easy and some are very strict. Uh, but this is they have rules and this is what keeps us healthy. And there's the idea that, like, there are rules of a healthy cell. So you don't multiply more than you need to. You don't take more than you need. You don't take more resources. Um, you you get rid of yourself when you're you're not needed anymore or you go to sleep you don't pollute the environment around you and you do the job that you're meant to be doing and these are the rules that keep the society of cells healthy and actually cancer cells they have genetic changes that turn them into cheats they become cheats in this society and this is the same in in all basically societies whether it's cells whether it's animals whether it's human societies Cheats will emerge, and it depends on the society around them whether or how much they thrive. And this idea that, like, can cheating cells always emerge all the time in our tissues? Most of the time, they get knocked down, they get controlled, they don't get out of control. If every cell turned into a cheating cell, you'd end up with, like, some terrible Mad Max dystopia, and that wouldn't <laughs> work. But, you know, I found this process replicated in like populations of slime mold amoebas, in bees, in deer. Like this is just a property of life. Where there are societies and rules, there are cheats. And so, you know, we're multicellular. We're made of lots of cells. We've evolved in these bodies. And so like cancer is going to emerge because it's just an emergent property of being a multicellular being. So yeah, bad luck. Her. <laughs> Well, give us an example of what you would call a cheat when it comes to human beings and the human population. 
So, yeah, I think it's sort of being very careful about how you define cheating because the the rules of the cellular society are basically the sort of the, the rules that keep our tissues healthy. So, I mean, there's there's general rules that if societies want to maintain some kind of function, you do need to like not take more than you need because then there's not enough for other people. You need to not pollute the world around you. You need to sort of stick to the thing you, you're meant to be doing. So in in that kind of respect, like we can, that rules, whether they're kind of strict and, and, you know, enforced by some kind of state police or whether they're just emergent rules from a society where it's like, okay, you know, maybe we should do it like this. We should do it like that. We should have rules of cooperation. And the woman that I talked to a lot about this, she's a woman called uh, Athena Ectipis. She's a researcher Arizona State University and she really came up with a lot of this idea because of her work studying cooperative human societies and so like our cells and our tissues work as a sort of a cooperative society it's all trying to keep us healthy there's no benefit for any one cell to go off and do its own thing except when cells pick up changes and then they start to gain benefits over the cells around them and, you know, as we know, in human societies, it's like there are cheats and there are people who just like bend and break the rules a little bit and get away with it. And then there are people who bend and break the rules a lot and don't get away with it. But if everyone's cheating or too many people are bending the rules, like society doesn't really work. So if you say like there's something really obvious, like a speed limit, it's like most people kind of stick to the speed limit. You know, we'll push it a bit. Some people don't. But if everyone was just going at like, you know, 100 miles an hour in a 30 limit that is really not going to work so you know if everyone's cheating it doesn't really work and this is not something new and 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 you talk about this and certainly in all the people that i get to speak to there's this underlying perception i guess that that the whole cancer thing is something that's not been around a really long time and that's not true is it no this really shocked me when i started looking into it properly i think when i was at cancer research uk we would get people saying you know oh, this is just this is a modern disease it's our terrible toxic modern lifestyles and this idea that cancer is like is a for a start uniquely human disease and a uniquely modern disease really i had to bust that right open that is a complete myth because we find cancer across every branch of the tree of life. The only exceptions that I could find are comb jellyfish. I mean, who knows what the jellyfish have got going on there? And sponges. And it's like every single other branch. The simplest organism is in 2014, researchers discovered a cancer, a naturally occurring cancer, in a tiny, tiny animal called a hydra, which is basically a little tube with tentacles on the top. It's just got three types of cells in it. And some of them had turned into cancer. We see cancer in fish, in birds, in reptiles, with different rates across different types of animals. You know, there, there are animals that do have very low rates of cancer and animals that have very high rates of cancer. And in fact, humans aren't the highest. Um, very small rodents tend to be much more cancer prone than we are. And also, it's not a new disease. Where we look in human populations, in human remains, we find evidence of cancer pretty much wherever we look. And actually, we haven't been looking that hard for it. And um, going all the way back, the week my book came out in the UK, there was a lovely paper, perfect timing, um, a 77 million year old dinosaur fossil had been found with an osteosarcoma, a bone tumour 
in one of its bones. And you're like, this is a deep, ancient disease. And again, it's like wherever there is life, there will be cancer because it is a process that is the flip side of life. And of course, you know, there are things in our modern lives that don't help and do increase the risk of it. But even if, you know, you lived in this perfect, perfect health bubble, there is still a chance that you would develop cancer because it's it's an emergent property of tissue, not inherently something external that, that's happened to you. Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. And then this is such a common theme. We as a society, when we hear those three devastating words, you have cancer, the first thing we say, and and this was with an interview I did last night, was, but I was a marathon runner and I ate healthy and I like this whole, there's blame for cancer. Or when someone says, oh, I have lung cancer, what's the first thing somebody says? Oh, well, how, how long did you smoke? Right? So there's, we, we attach blame to cancer. That's wrong, isn't it? In, in most cases. I think in, in all cases, and I go in quite a, a lot of detail in, in the book about like, how do we attribute causes? How do we talk about risk? How do we think about what actually causes cancer? And this, it's it's a complicated thing. It's never just one thing. Even in the terms of like the things that cause DNA damage. Yeah, yeah, we do know that cigarette smoking loads mutations into your cells. We know that. We can see them now. We have techniques. You can see the scars that are left in the genome by what we call carcinogens, things like tobacco smoke, things like UV light. So we can see that. But at the same time, because cancer cells are so messed up, they are so aberrant. And also all your healthy tissue is carrying loads of mutations as well. I mean, we could talk about that a bit, but this discovery that by middle age, like you are just a patchwork of mutation. And most of us, if we're lucky, will only in our lifetime develop maybe one, maybe two new cancers out of that mess of mutation. It's impossible to say it was this thing. There are things that increase the risk, but if you want something to blame, I think you should just blame like blame Charles Darwin, like blame the theory of evolution, <laughs> because it's a process. Our cells pick up damage, they grow, they evolve within the tissues of the body. And at some point, if they get a competitive selective advantage, they can grow into a cancer. And yeah, there are things that encourage that and things that discourage that and things that we do that make our tissues less healthy, increasing things like inflammation and damage in our tissues that increase the chances that these kind of unfit rogue cells will start to prosper. But if you want to find, oh, that was the thing. And one of the saddest stories when I was at Cancer Research UK, I I used to do a lot of inquiries from the public, answer a lot of those. And this woman wrote to us and she was she was absolutely distraught because her husband had just passed away from pancreatic cancer and she'd seen on our website that we said processed meats increase the risk of pancreatic cancer and you know and every day she was like I've sent him off every day with a ham sandwich for his lunch and now he's died of pancreatic cancer and I was like I've killed him I did it I did it and I, she was completely distraught and trying to explain to her what and I think sometimes it's not very helpful when we say, oh, this is a cause and this is a risk. And because ultimately, you probably will never know. You'll, it's like the um, Agatha Christie story, the murder on the Orient Express. It's like you're never going to know who actually 
was the fatal uh, the fatal murderer because there's there's so many things in such a messed up situation. So is it fair to say that oftentimes it's just bad luck? Yeah, the the bad. I, there's wonderful coverage a few years ago of this, like cancer is just bad luck, and I, I spend quite a lot of time going. I went to talk to the researcher who who did that work, and I spend a lot of time unpicking this idea of is it bad luck? And I think the the sort of the scientific definition of bad luck is like is this idea that it can just emerge from your body. You know, every day, just the processes of life at work within ourselves cause damage to our DNA, cause damage to our tissues. Like be, being alive is what finally kills us, really, in the long term. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, if you want to really reduce your risk of cancer, stop breathing oxygen. I mean, <laughs> I sort of used to joke about that. But, you know, if, there are things that it just, just the processes of life damage our cells. We can't stop those, obviously, because it's the price we pay for life. But, yeah, in terms of bad luck, yeah, it's it's not a very scientific word. But I think there's definitely something about how we talk about what causes cancer. I don't even like talking about the cause of cancer. I like talking about things that increase risk or decrease risk. But that's very hazy shades of grey language that a lot of people don't like because we want to know. We want to know for sure. And it's it's quite difficult as a science communicator to try and try and explain that and to try and you know codify and explain a term like it's just kind of bad luck like evolution won that battle (laughs) in your tissue yeah bummer really sorry and if it was strictly environmental and and things of that nature then how would you explain young children who get cancer you know i was i was diagnosed with uh, a wilms tumor when i was four years old Right. I wasn't around long enough to smoke or <laughs> lay in the sun. <laughs> out for a craft right? thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know nurseries nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's. I mean, this is the uh, the other thing as well is that really, um, if we're thinking about how we talk about things, childhood cancers. I almost feel like we need different words because they are they're a completely different biological disease from adult cancers you know ultimately yeah it's the same process of too many cells in the wrong place but childhood cancers are all about cells that have embarked on a journey of development this is where my interest as a developmental biologist comes in they've embarked on a journey to do something to follow their instructions and become you know a liver or a kidney or a a brain cell or something like that and then because of a genetic change uh, that they've picked up along the way during that kind of hurly-burly of development or potentially even inherited from the very earliest days of their life you know, in the womb, something has gone wrong with that process of cells meant to be doing the right thing and the cells stop doing the right thing and they just get stuck in this kind of proliferating stage. And that's why childhood cancers are so exquisitely tied to particular tissues and particular times of life. Like there are types of childhood leukemia that almost by the clock, if you know exactly what's gone wrong with them by the time that that cancer turns up. If it's two years old, it's this type. If it's three years old, it's this type. If it's infancy, it's it's this type because of where those cells have gone wrong in their little journey. So it's really, I scientifically, if you want to think about it, you know, childhood cancers are diseases of, of differentiation or, or wrong differentiation you know cells not doing and specializing in the way that they should 
Whereas in adults, cancer is really this kind of cells that have picked up changes, emerging as cheats and then being selected for in the tissue in, in which they find themselves. So it's, it's the more I think about it, it feels like two very, very different biological processes. The woman who I interviewed last night, uh, her name is Caroline Rose. She's coming up in a future episode here in a few weeks. She's now 10 years in remission from stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And one of the things that she talked to me about, Kat, was, you know, she had three occurrences along the way before uh, a third bone marrow transplant that was part of a clinical trial, and I don't recall all the details. But her message was that each treatment she went through, she felt was buying her time until the next treatment came along to prolong her life. And in your episode of your podcast, Genetics Unzipped, the episode where you talked about your book, Rebel Cell, you talked about how much things have progressed just in the last, say, 15 years in terms of cancer research and and treatments. Do you subscribe to that theory that, you know, buying time and, you know, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but when you look at what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years, looking ahead 10 or 15 years from now, is it possible that the approach to treating cancer will dramatically change? So this is the question that absolutely fascinates me. And it's kind of where I get to at the end of the book. And it's really interesting hearing about that woman's experience, because in the book, I write about stage four kidney cancer, and is still here, you know, years after really he or anyone else expected him to. And and I sort of describe this kind of approach to treatment as whack-a-mole. So, you know, he's on a drug, his cancer, because it's evolving, and you're putting a selective pressure on it by treating it, you know, there are resistant cells in there, you kill off the sensitive cells, the resistant cells start growing, and so your cancer comes back. And then if you're lucky like he's been, there's another drug you can try. And so he's tried that and then gets to a point where, okay, that stopped working because the cancer has evolved resistance to that. Let's try again. And that's the same kind of treatment that this woman you've talked about is is on. You know, you, it's basically whack-a-mole. It's like, let's see how far this one goes and then hope that there's something else. And the problem with that approach is that at some point you're basically, you know, out of options. Am I allowed to swear? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's the good. problem it's with that fine. kind of approach is that at some point you are out of options. And so I think that there's a few things that I do really want to dig into about the way that we treat cancer now. And certainly, you know, I'm absolutely not a kind of tinfoil hat wearing pharma conspiracist. But I do think that a lot of the focus that we have on finding new treatments for cancer is very much just looking in one place and very, very deterministic about just finding the mutations in a cancer, developing a drug and treating the cancer with that. But like that's a recipe for evolution. Like that almost the more selective your treatment, the harder you're going to select for cells that are resistant to it and that they will come back further down the line. And then you've got to try again and try again. And there's some interest in things like combinations. So finding the right kind of combinations that cancers can't evolve resistance to. There's a lot of excitement about immunotherapy. So these are the very, very hot cancer drugs that they basically stimulate the immune system to recognize and and to destroy cancer cells. And they don't work for everyone. And in some cases, they can actually 
make the cancer a lot worse very, very suddenly. You know, the immune system is a is a powerful beast to set against the powerful beast that is cancer. And, you know, it doesn't always work. And in some cases, it, it, it does make things worse. But so I think we do need to, like, really explore the immune system more. And that's a very exciting area. But the thing that really excites me is actually really treatments that acknowledge the evolutionary processes of cancer that yes you're going to have cells in there that are resistant to a treatment so let's accept that and work out how do we you know maybe apply cycles of drugs in the right way I go and talk to a researcher called Bob Gattenby who's down at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida uh, down in Tampa that's where I get my treatment well you are a very lucky man because uh, Bob Gattenby is an amazing, amazing human being. And they're doing really exciting stuff because their their main weapon down there is actually maths. So they're really using these evolutionary equations to understand how is this cancer going to respond? How do we kind of balance these populations of cells? Uh, they've been running a trial of prostate cancer there where they have men who are going through these sort of cycles, on and off cycles of treatment. And they have people on that trial who survived for time to progression has been like four years when normally it would be about 18 months. And, you know, if that was a new drug, the world would just be absolutely going mad for it. But because it's this kind of slightly weird way of using existing drugs in new ways, I think people find it hard to get their heads around it because you treat someone and then you stop treating them and you wait for the cancer to come back and, and then you treat them again. And then it works again. And it's like, this is just weird, but it's all based on evolutionary principles. And then the next kind of logical leap from that, and I'm really excited about this, is about how do you devise then extinction strategies? If we think about this as an evolutionary phenomenon, and you think about like, well, what does cause animal populations to go extinct? It's never just one thing. You know, the the asteroid strike did not do for the dinosaurs because I've got dinosaurs sitting in my tree outside, you know, didn't kill them all. But, you know, you need multiple things. You need big hits and small hits and, and shrinking habitats. So how do we work out how to do that rationally for cancers, even with the drugs that we have? We could use the drugs we have so much smarter without all this, like, let's just find another fancy targeted therapy. It's not often you hear me on the podcast promoting a specific product or service, but when I come across something that I have personally tried and it has made my life more comfortable or easier to manage or help manage a side effect, I think I owe it to you guys to let you know about it. Early last year when I had a recurrence of colorectal cancer in my liver, I was put on full fury chemotherapy. Uh, a common protocol for those who are going through colorectal cancer. And a lot of people refer to full fury as full fury, uh, a nod to the frequent trips to the bathroom that can result from being on this chemo. What I found was because of that, you know, a lot of itching and rawness and pain uh, from constant trips to the bathroom. And I happened to see online a fantastic product made by a company called Lux, that's L-U-X-E, and it's a bidet that in about, I think it took me 15 minutes to attach it to the toilet seat 
and it has knobs where you can control the, the flow and the pressure of the flow of the water so you get clean through uh, a water rinse rather than constant rubbing and wiping. And uh, toilet paper now just becomes something just to blot dry with at this point. And I find that if I need to use a restroom and I'm not home, I'm like, darn it, I wish I was home and had that bidet. It has made a world of difference to me. I tell my wife all the time, that's the best money we've spent in some time. So I want to offer it up to all of our listeners. You can visit their website, real easily just by going to wehavecancershow.com forward slash Lux. Again, that's L-U-X-E. Check out their array of products. Pick the one you think is best for you. Trust me, folks, it's a decision that will make things much more comfortable, especially if you're going through uh, cancer treatments as I am. Check it out again at wehavecancershow.com forward slash Lux. That's really encouraging to hear. And, you know, I'm nine and a half years stage four colorectal cancer. And my oncologist at Moffitt, I live right near Moffitt, coincidentally. And, and that's funny that you mentioned it because before we started talking, you never asked me where I, where in the U.S. am I. And so what a coincidence that that's where I've been treated. And my oncologist called me an outlier. And I see you nodding your head, you know, nine and a half years, you know, with metastatic cancer. But one of the things that you said on your podcast that, you know, got to be honest, sent a little bit of a chill through me, was you adapted a common phrase and you applied it to cancer. And you said, unfortunately, what doesn't kill cancer makes it stronger, which is what you've been talking to. Does that mean that those of us with metastatic cancer don't have a lot of hope or, you know, is it really depends on the individual? And, it absolutely depends because every single cancer is a one-off evolutionary event. And that I think is, again, is a, an idea that people don't really get. It's like you go, oh, well, it's, it's colon cancer. It's, it's breast cancer. It's, it's a brain tumor. Like every single breast cancer, every single bowel cancer is a one-off evolutionary event. It's unique because of your genetics and your body. And it's unique because of the evolutionary trajectory that it's been on to develop into the malignancy that it is. So, you know, to, and this is the, the difficult thing because from to get large scale trials and clinical data so that we can at least start to think about, well, how does this drug work? How does this treatment work? You need statistics and you need populations and you need numbers. But then going from that population to the personal is is so hard, it's almost meaningless. Like say, you know, on a population level, you have a 25% chance of survival. It's like, well, for you, it's like it's it's a yes or no, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, a, it's impossible. Like, what does 25% of me surviving mean? It doesn't, you know, you can't, you can't go from population right. to personal. And so, you know, we do have this language, like kind of outliers and, and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, I think what's, what's really interesting is actually studying the people who are the outliers. Like what's interesting about your cancer? What was the, the kind of evolutionary process that's going on there? There's a really interesting study in the UK that's going on in kidney cancer where they are taking samples of people's tumors like regularly throughout the whole journey of their disease from when they're first diagnosed 
through to recurrence, through to maybe recurrence again. And then also after the end of life, um, as sort of a, as an autopsy program to understand what was the journey. And for the people who survived longer, what was, what was their cancer actually like? So trying to work out like what lessons can we learn rather than saying, well, you know, it's obviously, it's amazing for you. Your story is absolutely incredible. But as an evil, you know, as a biologist, I'm fascinated by like, what's your tumor evolution been like? You know, what are you doing? How is it responding? <laughs> I'm on, have been since May, maintenance chemo. And uh, things are very stable, very minimal uh, on my last CT. But yeah, nine and a half years since original diagnosis. Plus, I was a pediatric kidney cancer uh, patient. So, as I said in the very first episode of this podcast, uh, cancer has been yeah. part of my life for most of my life. I mean, I think most we get into the sort of slightly slippery idea of the we this sort of narrative of the cure, which I think is really seductive. And it's what's driven, you know, it's what drove the organization I worked for that was founded in 1903 to find the cure. And it drives all the marketing. It's like we all want to find the cure. And it's such a, a big idea in the collective culture that there is the cure for cancer. I mean, for a start, like, well, which cancers, what cancer, what cure? And, but this idea there is the cure and it's going to look like, you know, a syringe full of drugs or a bottle of pills. And this idea that actually really trying to go for cure, the sort of trying to nuke it from orbit, that may work for some people. There, there are is curative options and we can cure some cancers. These are cancers that by that we mean that it never comes back in a person's lifetime. But this sort of idea that actually long-term control, not just is like, oh, well, that's sort of a second best. It's like, in many cases, that could be the aim. But it's it's not this like cure, cure, cure that we've been sold, you know. So I think really kind of revising right. our narrative of what we think the cure for cancer actually looks like and how it manifests is um, is something that we need to grapple with a bit as well. Do you think it's more realistic, Kat, that cancer, maybe not all, but some can become, and I think some already have, more of a chronic illness like a type 2 diabetes that you know, we just hold it at bay and, and that's, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the poster child for that is um, chronic myeloid leukemia. So you have Gleevec, which is probably, I think, the single most successful cancer drug of all time, in my opinion, that just holds this disease. And it's been absolutely transformative. But it sort of, it did mislead us a bit that like we'd be able to find a Gleevec for every cancer. And I sort of explore that a bit as well, the sort of, the rabbit holes that we've been down in our, in our ideas. Um, but yeah, this idea that for some cancers, that not trying to interfere too much may actually be a better option. The problem is right now, like, we don't know which ones. You know, this is the problem with cancer screening as well. It's like we screen a lot for a lot of cancers. We find a lot of lumps and bumps. And in some cases, those will be cancers that were found early and would have grown into something terrible. And in other cases, there are lumps and bumps that would not. And we just don't know. So we do need to understand a lot more about the sort of the genetics and the evolutionary processes that are going on. Like, what, what do really bad cells look like? How do they really behave? What are they likely to do next? 
Um, these are really important questions. But also sort of to speak to the idea that, oh, well, you know, let's stop trying to think of the cure because we could just turn this into a chronic disease. In some cases, it comes back to the idea of extinction. So cure is not, you know, we have this idea that cure is like eradication, like, you know, napalm. But this idea of devising an extinction strategy to shrink a population so small that it will collapse, I think is interesting. And I was talking to a um, a researcher, a clinician who treats people with malignant melanoma. And she's saying now with um, some of the new targeted therapies, things like Zelbaraf, it was the case where people were treated and you'd see incredible remissions, you know, the, the cancer just vanishing. Um, and then a few months later, or maybe a year later, it was just back with a vengeance. And she's saying now by altering the timing of when they use the drugs and, and using it, you know, in the right time with surgery, they're seeing the cancer cells, like, they're just kind of shrinking, and then they just seem to go. So that's probably an extinction strategy. So, you know, I think that that, those kinds of ideas. But, you know, is that the big, like, guns blazing cure? I don't know. The word cure is very appealing and seductive. We all want the cure for cancer, but it might not look like we thought it was. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I find it fascinating, you know, what you said about what Dr. Guttenby is doing at Moffitt, that uh, the next step, the, the progress may not have to be finding that magic drug. It might be we already have the tools yeah. using them different ways. The one example is, for example, we think about treating a cancer. You treat with a large dose of drugs over a certain period of time. The cancer shrinks on the scan. It looks like it's completely gone away. And you're like, yay, brilliant, excellent, fantastic. You know, go away, come back in six months. And then you sort of, the, the, over time, the cancer grows back. And this time round, it's grown back from cells that are resistant to that drug because they were the ones that weren't killed by the treatment, but you couldn't see them because they were very small. And so you sort of, then it's like, oh, we've got to start again treating from this point. So maybe there's even just a simple, smart strategy of when the cancer appears to have shrunk to nothing, treat again with a different drug because you can almost guarantee there's still going to be cancer cells in there and they will still be resistant and maybe they won't be resistant to this other drug. So you kind of kick them when they're down. So there's sort of a strategy called the sucker's gambit. You're kind of like, you know, get them down and then kick them when they're down again. So just these slightly smarter strategies, I think, are, are really interesting. Kath, this has been absolutely fascinating. I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours, but it's getting My a little late in the UK <laughs> and you've been generous. <laughs> you've been so generous with your time. Uh, this is a topic in five years we've not covered. And that means a lot to me because there's people who are going to listen to the, our conversation uh, just as I have and are going to walk away with a whole new view of cancer perhaps new conversations that can be had with their doctors in terms of, you know, how to, how to look at things and your passion for what you do is, is contagious. It really is. Uh, and I just feel energized, you know, speaking to you and hearing this and I feel like I'm a more informed patient from having this conversation with you. And, thank you and very that, much. I, say, no, I say in the introduction of the book, like this isn't really a book about cancer. It's a book about life. Uh, this is, you know, I didn't set out to write, you know, kind of a, a miserable, sad, hopeless book about cancer. I set out to write one that was hopeful 
I hope it is, and really embedded in in life and humanity. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me on to talk about it. So, again, the book is Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal. For information on when and where you can get the book, it's going to be out in about a week or so. Visit rebelcellbook.com. Kat, thank you again. Have a great evening. Be well. I want to thank the Colon Cancer Coalition for your longstanding support of the We Have Cancer podcast. As you know, folks, because of COVID-19, all of the uh, charities that typically have, you know, 5K run events, marathons, walks, etc., uh, all, have all had to shut those down uh, because of quarantine, which has dramatically impacted their fundraising efforts. And these funds uh, go to you know, very worthy causes, as is the case for the Colon Cancer Coalition, which has been sponsoring Get Your Rear and Gear run walk events across the country for years. I've done my part in providing some financial support to them because they have been so supportive of the show and more importantly because of the amazing work that the team at the Colon Cancer Coalition does to fund local organizations across the country to uh, help those in need get screenings and to do provide research for you know uh, colorectal cancer and finding uh, ways to treat it if you have the means and you or someone you love has been touched by colorectal cancer i know uh, that i would appreciate and they greatly would appreciate any support you can give you can support them by visiting their website at colon cancer coalition.org forward slash events there you'll find all kinds of a, a virtual run walk events doesn't matter if there's one scheduled for your city or not it really doesn't matter your location but if you have the means to support them please give i know that the team there greatly would appreciate it and would i Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.